Our scripture reading is taken from Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. We took a break for several weeks during Advent season, but we're picking up again where we left off in the beginning of December. We've been following Jesus Christ through the gospel of Mark. And we resume today, Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the little children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table can eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is God's word. Some people may be thinking at this point, I knew it. Jesus was too good to be true. Following him through the gospel of Mark, he's doing these amazing things, these amazing miracles, healing the sick, casting out those who are casting out demons from those who are spiritually and psychologically oppressed teaching amazing sayings and truths. But I knew Jesus was too good to be true. Here he is, a Jew, referring to a Gentile woman as a dog. He's just another religious bigot. Now, hold on. If you're thinking that way, I just want you to stick with me. Jesus breaks all sorts of barriers in this incident. Jesus crosses religious boundaries. Jesus crosses geographic boundaries, ethnic boundaries, gender boundaries that were unprecedented and unheard of for the Jews of his day. Jesus has been preaching in Mark's gospel about the kingdom of God and who is worthy to enter into it. But what we've been discovering through Mark's gospel is that worthiness doesn't come by any of the typical qualities that we would think of. Worthiness to enter God's kingdom does not come about by your origin, by your place of origin or birth, by your culture, the culture in which you were raised. Being worthy to enter the kingdom of God does not come to you by means of your education or your intelligence. Being worthy does not come through your sense of morality Your ability to be moral and to live a moral life. Being worthy to enter the kingdom of God does not come by your effort to please God, to strive to honor God and meet his expectations and serve the people around you. On the other hand, worthiness comes by faith, which is something different. Actually, what we are seeing in the gospel of Mark is that faith, the type of faith that the Bible talks about, the type of faith that saves us, faith assumes that you're unworthy in the presence of God. 
to enter his kingdom, to have a seat at his table, to be a member of his family and of his faith community in his own house, in his own place. Faith assumes that you're unworthy, but faith also assumes that God is gracious to people who are unworthy. So I want to talk today about how Jesus responds to this woman. I also want to talk, to, I want to talk about how we respond to this woman and to people like her. And finally, I want to talk about how God responds to us. Three responses, how Jesus responds to the woman, how we respond to the woman, and then how God responds to us. Now, Jesus' response to this woman is worthy of our attention. At first glance, he seems apathetic. Even worse, Jesus, Jesus seems very crude by how he responds to the woman. And I want to respond to that. I want to highlight three different things. I want to highlight that he's actually revealing things that are to come. He's also clarifying his mission and his purpose. And he's testing the woman. And by extension, he's testing us who listen. Now, Jesus is revealing. He's seizing the opportunity by her approaching him and his disciples. He's seizing an opportunity to reveal things that are to come. God's kingdom blessings are surprise for Gentiles too. The Jews always assumed that the blessings of the God of Israel were for Israel. But Jesus, Jesus gives us a sneak peek of what was going to happen in the years and decades and centuries to come. That the blessings of the God of Israel were for Gentiles also. We, we read about it earlier today when we read Isaiah chapter 42 together. Where God is telling his servant to come. The Messiah to come. That he was ordained to be a light for the nations. Not just a light for Israel. But a light for the nations. The Apostle Paul, decades later, would pick up on this theme in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul wrote, It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, sons in the Bible meant heirs, men and women, anyone who would inherit the estate. That's what the Bible, the New Testament, means by sons. Just wanted to point that out. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So we see in the New Testament that everything God was doing in ancient Israel, through Abraham and his descendants, everything God was doing in Israel was really setting the stage to bless all of humanity, all nations and people groups and ethnicities through Israel. That was the point of Israel, to prepare the way for God to bless all of humanity and all of the nations. And this would happen through the work of Jesus' apostles. The apostles right now, they're just these clueless disciples that are following him everywhere and listening to everything that he has to say. A day would come where Jesus would leave and the apostles would continue his work. And it was through the apostles, recorded historically in the book of Acts, that we would say, see this unfolding of the blessings of Israel's God coming to the nations. It's at the end of the book of Acts, of Acts chapter 28, when the Apostle Paul, under house arrest in the city of Rome, is sharing the message of Christianity with 
with his countrymen, with other Jews. And some of them believe him and some of them don't. And they're arguing and debating him. And he says to them at the end of the, of the book of Acts, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So Jesus is giving us a sneak peek, his disciples a sneak peek of what's going to come, of what would soon be a global reality. But he's doing something else. He's now clarifying his mission and his purpose. He was sent to preach salvation to the Jews. If, if there's good news for the world, the good news first had to, be, had to be sent and preached to the people of Israel. The promises of Israel had to be fulfilled in Christ. And so his primary role was to come to the people of Israel and to preach to the lost sheep of Israel. Actually, Matthew's gospel also records this incident. But in Matthew's gospel, he gives a couple of details of the incident that Mark doesn't share. Mark gives a very basic, rudimentary um, description of the account. Matthew gives a more full detail account. And in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus clarifies by saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Apostle Paul, again, would pick up on this theme in the book of Romans where he would say that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the New Testament would explain that God's salvation is for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. But Jesus' priority was first to preach good news to the lost sheep of Israel and then to, by his apostles to reach the nations. Okay? So he's clarifying his mission. He's revealing things to come. He's also testing this woman. And I think he's testing us if we're really listening to him. Because he uses the word dog. He doesn't call her a dog, but he does say to the woman, look, the children get the food. Right? It's not right to give to the pets scurrying around in the house what belongs to the children at the dinner table. Now, the word dog, that's a, it's a, it was a racial slur. Used by, by Jews of that time to refer, it was a derogatory term that some of the Jews used referring to Gentiles who were ceremonially unclean. We've talked about that from the beginning of Mark chapter 7. So it, it, it was a very negative thing. It was a negative connotation that Jesus is shedding light on here. Now, was he a bigot? Is Jesus a bigot? Look. One of the most important principles in interpreting the Bible is allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. If you're confused about a passage of Scripture, go to other places in the Bible to help understand what's actually going on. And I would encourage you to consider the context of what Jesus is saying. Consider the context of his ministry and of the New Testament. Think of the other things that Jesus said and the type of people that Jesus associated himself with. Think of the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus befriended the Samaritan woman. That was a no-no because she was a Samaritan, because she was a woman. Think context again. Jesus in Luke chapter 4, when he began his ministry and he was speaking in the synagogue, Jesus talked about God's kindness to Gentiles in the Old Testament. The Syrian general Naaman. And a Gentile widow of Zarephath, who is, who is um, visited by the prophet Elijah. 
The Jews in the synagogue were so upset at Jesus because he brought up the fact that God was actually kind to Gentiles in the Old Testament. Jesus mentions in John chapter 10 that he has other sheep that aren't in this sheep pen. Meaning, not only do I have sheep among the people of Israel, but I have sheep among the Gentiles. Jesus associated with unclean tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and drunks. Amongst Jesus' closest friends and supporters and eyewitnesses were women. The first people to witness the resurrection were women. In that day and age, you would never allow women to be witnesses. And a rabbi wouldn't necessarily allow women to be so close to him supporting his ministry. Jesus was anything but a bigot. Again and again, Jesus breaks all sorts of racial, ethnic, religious, cultural boundaries. And he does it here again. He leaves the area of the Sea of Galilee where he was preaching to Jews and ministering to Jews. And he goes over to the region of Tyre, which is on the Mediterranean coast. It was a predominantly Gentile region. It's where, it's where the wicked Jezebel came from. It was Jews considered the region of Tyre and Sidon to be a hostile place. So Jesus goes there to get a retreat. He's wiped out. It says he was trying to hide himself. He was unable to hide himself. The woman found out that he was there. And so once again, Jesus has to get up and begin to minister and begin to teach again. But he's breaking all sorts of boundaries. Okay. It does, however, make you uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because he still talks about the racial slur of saying that Gentiles were like dogs. Like a good teacher, Jesus is making you uncomfortable. He's not resolving it for you. Scholars don't, have, scholars don't have great insight into what was really going on in Jesus' mind when he, when he brought, shed light on this racial slur. So we have to use co- the context of the Bible to see what kind of record did Jesus have? Who did he associate with? He associated with people who were despised by society. And I believe what he's doing here is he's testing this woman. Think about this woman. She responds beautifully to his testing. Okay. This is a desperate woman. This woman is advocating for her daughter who is helpless. Have you ever become an advocate for somebody that was close to you? Have you ever become the advocate for a loved one, somebody in your family? I remember watching my wife. Uh, just a few years ago, my mother-in-law got very sick uh, to the point that un- unless she had an advocate, an advocate outside of the medical professionals, unless she had an advocate who loved her and was fighting for her needs, she was going to die. And so my wife became her advocate for between 6 to 12 months. Um, and the woman lived for various reasons, okay? But one of the most important reasons were, was she had an advocate. When you are advocating for someone who cannot speak for themselves, who cannot act for themselves, and you're motivated by love, and you're motivated by desperation, there is anything, you're, you're willing to do anything. You're willing to say anything. You're willing to talk to anybody. You're willing to jump over any obstacle to ensure that your loved one has the advocacy she needs, the advocacy he needs. And you see that desperation in this woman, 
Desperation drives you. Desperation gives you hope. Desperation allows you to trust that there must be a solution. You just saw the movie The Martian starring Matt, Matt Damon. It's a, it's, a, it's a space fantasy, a sci-fi, where, where astronaut Mark Whitney, he doesn't want to be left to die on Mars by himself. And so he's convinced that there's a way to stay alive and there's a way to get back home to Earth. And the reason he's willing to persevere is because he's desperate. Desperation drives people to trust and to hope that there must be a solution. And you see that desperation in this woman. Not only do you see desperation, you see something, you see something quite astounding. You see humility. You see her accept her status. She doesn't deny that she's unworthy. She, Jesus is basically saying, I've come, I've come to reach the Jews. You're a Gentile. Why are you talking to me? And she accepts the fact that she's a Gentile. And she accepts the fact that she's unworthy. She doesn't put on an act. She doesn't put on any pretenses. She doesn't act and speak like something she is not, like someone she is not. She goes, you're right, Lord. You got me. I don't deserve anything from you. I'm a, I'm a Gentile and you're a Jew. But, and she says, even the children's crumbs are available to the dogs. Now, she probably means pets in the house that are scurrying around the table. She's really saying, you know, what's available to kids at the table is available to the pets that are running around on the floor. What she's really saying to him is, grace is grace. Mercy is mercy. Whether it's on the table or on the floor, it's just as sweet wherever you find it. And Lord Jesus, I don't deserve anything. I'm unworthy. I'll take whatever you're willing to give me. I'm that desperate. And so this is something amazing. The first person in Mark's gospel to understand a parable is this woman. Jesus is teaching in parables, right? And, and, and nobody understands what he's saying. And his own disciples who know him best, they have to go to him in private and say, what in the world are you talking about? And he says to them, look, do I have to explain it to you? Let me explain what the parable means. We see this again and again and again. And now, for the first time in this gospel, we see someone hear a parable. The parable is the children and the dogs. She hears the parable. She understands it without explanation. And she offers a counter parable back to Jesus. She's a woman and she's a Gentile. And she's the first person to understand a parable. And Jesus is amazed. Very few things amaze Jesus. In the beginning of Mark's uh, in the beginning of Mark chapter 6, Jesus is amazed when he goes to his hometown and discovers their lack of faith. His own people, his own family, the community in which he grew up, they didn't believe in him. And Mark chapter 6 tells us, and he marveled at their lack of faith. But here, he marvels at the great faith of this Gentile woman. And Matthew's gospel records Jesus' response to her with these words. He says to her, great is your faith, exclamation point in the English. So Jesus not only grants her the crumbs, he gives her, he gives her the whole feast. Because of her faith, he says, 
the crumbs, never mind the crumbs, I am going to give you everything. You have a seat at the table because of your great faith. And the Lord Jesus, as a man, was amazed. Now, let me take a break to ask you a question. How are you responding inwardly to this interaction between this woman and Jesus? How are you struggling with this interaction? Maybe just a couple of brief thoughts and comments. What do you think? Would you, have, would you have the kind of humility that she expresses to, to not just walk away, but press him even further? Good point. Yeah. You can't expect her response out of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Would she walk away still believing she was unworthy? It's a good question. And, and I think we're gonna get in, I'm going to get into that as we keep. I'm hoping that, that you'll get some resolution as we continue. And if not, let's talk afterward. Good insight. Yeah. So, you know, you knew this interaction was going to be. Uh-huh. I think that is a good observation. And and scholars are frank. It's really hard to interpret what is going on in Jesus's mind at all. But but in a passage like this. Um, But I I think it's very reasonable to suggest, look, he was a teacher. He knows he knows what's going on in people's hearts. He knows the future. He knows not only what his purpose was, but he knows what the mission of his apostles is going to be. But again, he he. When Jesus spoke, he said, I only reveal to you what, the, what my Father in heaven has revealed to me. So Jesus is fully God from a theological perspective, but he's also fully human. And we have to acknowledge the fact that Jesus in his humanity um, is not privy to everything that God the Father on his throne is privy to. I do think it's reasonable to suggest this is a teaching opportunity, not only for the woman, but for his disciples. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit is providing a teaching opportunity for us. Good thoughts. I think that our response, our response to this woman and our response to people like this woman is critical. We have to be uncomfortable We have to wrestle with this woman and people like her if we're going to be a missional church. Let me clarify what I mean by a missional church. Because if you were around in the very beginning, before we went public, you heard me use this word all the time. You don't hear me say it as much now. A missional church is a church that is gospel-centered, a church that applies the timeless truth of the gospel to the specific needs of a people group and a cultural geographical location. A missional church is a church that meets the needs of this place, of this area, of this group of people. It's not church the way we want it. 
church, the, the church that suits our own preferences. It's a missional church. It's a church that does church God's way, the way God intends for the people of that location and culture to receive the Christian message. Right? Being missional as a church is saying we're going to go into a community, we're going to study and learn and be students of its people and of its culture and of its needs and figure out what's the best way to grow a faith community for the needs of that place. That's a missional church. And so I think as we consider being, continuing to become, and to grow a missional church here in Westminster and in Carroll County, we have to consider this passage and we have to recognize that God will bless anyone who is desperate enough to trust him. Let that be in our foundational understanding. God will bless anyone who's desperate enough to trust him. And as a missional church, those are the type of people that we should be seeking out. Those are the type of people that we should be praying for, people who are desperate. That's hard for me to do because when I walk into Starbucks and I walk down the street, I, I like finding people that act like me and look like me and like the things that I like, people that I think are cool, people that I want to be friends with. And often God doesn't bring them. I'm not saying I don't like anybody here. But, but God works in amazing ways because the people I try and encourage to consider Christianity, they never listen. But God brings somebody across my path and he says, I want you to talk to this person. I want you to invite this person because this is the person I want to work with. Go, okay, Lord, whatever you say. Okay. There are desperate people out there. We need to pray for them. We need to find them. Because it's the desperate people who are willing to receive God's help. Like this woman. And do I mean financially desperate? Sure, absolutely. But that's not the only type of desperation I'm talking about. People are desperate for sanity. People are desperate for emotional stability. People are desperate for physical healing. People are desperate for friendship and community and a sense of belonging. People are desperate for reconciliation and peace. People are desperate for basic liberties that we take for granted as Americans. People are desperate for truth and meaning and purpose and identity in the midst of all the confusion. And what we see in this passage is that God takes the plight of desperate people seriously, and so should we. If God takes the plight of desperate people seriously, so should his church. So should his children. So, as a baby church... Let's trust that Jesus can bless people who are desperate for his grace. Jesus can bless people who are as desperate as we are. Now, you may be thinking at this point, wait a minute, I'm not desperate. I'm not desperate. I don't know desperation. I'm not struggling that, that, like that woman was. And you know what? That's the problem. That's our problem, is we don't think we're desperate. We forget what it's like to be desperate. Or we ignore what it's like to be desperate. And two pitfalls I want to talk about regarding our propensity to forget what it's like to be desperate and to know desperation are moral pride and moral abandon. Those two ideas. 
the more comfortable we become in our religion, the more we're likely to think that we're really worthy in the presence of God. The more comfortable we become in our religion, the more worthy we seem to ourselves. Once you were desperate, and you knew you were desperate, and you went to God and you said to him, in other words, I'm desperate, and I need your help, and I'll do anything. Just help me, and I'll follow you. And so he helped you. And now you're doing well. Maybe you're a volunteer in your church. Maybe you're a leader in your church. Maybe you've got a good job. Maybe you've saved money and you have resources. And your life's not disorganized and confused and chaotic like others because you've thought, you've planned, you've saved. And things are in order for you. Your kids are really well behaved. Your kids are really well educated. You have a good reputation at work or with your neighbors. You have a good marriage. You're not desperate anymore. You can't remember when you were last desperate. And so now you're beginning to think that you really are worthy. That you have a seat at God's table in God's household with God's family because somewhere along the way you've deserved it. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That was in Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. But the way Luke records the Sermon on the Mount, he just says, blessed are the poor. (laughs) That's even more awkward. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of the good news of the kingdom of God can be received by people who know that they are desperate. That's why the global south is exploding in response to Christianity, while the global north, and particularly the global northwest, is beginning to reject it. Because the gospel is designed to be received by people who know they are poor, who know they are desperate. Now let's talk about the other side of the coin. Because right? some of us get comfortable in our religion and begin to think, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're set. We're, we're, we're worth it. We're worthy. But some of us, some of us get comfortable in our irreligion, in our lack of faithfulness, in, in, in our desire to stay the heck away from God and want nothing to do with him. The more comfortable we become in our irreligion, the less gracious God will appear to us. Maybe you've been running from God for so long that decision after decision, choice after choice, habit after habit, you're just convinced now that he would never take you back. He would never receive you. He would never forgive you. Maybe you've been running from God and have been apart from God for so long that you're just resolved to live without him in the universe. You've made yourself a cosmic orphan. And you can't imagine that he'd ever let you back. And so you're just thinking God is biased against me and God is unforgiving. I'll never make the cut. I'll never have a seat at his table. He'll never even offer me the crumbs off of his table. I'll get nothing if I try and go back to him. But Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that God is rich in mercy. You know, hell is full of people 
who assumed that they were worthy to stand in God's presence based on their own good merit, their own attempts to be righteous. And hell is also full of people who assume that God would never forgive them. And so they never asked for it. But the woman, the woman exhibiting faith rejects both of those assumptions. She doesn't assume that God's ungracious. She doesn't assume that she's worthy. In faith, the woman trusts that a gracious God welcomes unworthy sinners. God's response to sinners, as the Bible explains it, God's response to unworthy sinners is the source of hope for, for us who need his mercy. And the way God deals with sinners is not only a source of hope for us, it's a source of sympathy for how we think of and interact with other people, with one another and with the people in our community and in our world. The Apostle Paul was once, before he was Paul, back when he was Saul of Tarsus. Um, Saul of Tarsus was a proud, law-abiding, pharisaical Jew. Proud of it. Proud of persecuting Christians to their imprisonment, imprisonment and even to their death. But Paul met Jesus Christ went under a remarkable change. And years later, as a missionary for Jesus of Nazareth, Paul would be able to write these words in Ephesians chapter 3. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I think what we see here in Paul's words is that he, ne- he hears a man mature in his faith Years, decades later from his conversion point, still knowing that he was desperate. And I think you see that in his words. I'm, I'm the least of all the saints. Yeah, I'm planting churches all over the, the Roman world. I'm writing portions of the Bible. But you know what? I'm the least. When it comes to the saints, I'm the least of all of them. I'm the big, I've said this before. Paul, Paul thought he was the biggest sinner he knew. And I think what we see in Paul's words here is an acknowledgement that he was still desperate. And that, de- and that sense of desperation, he responded to his desperation in faith, and it gave him hope. Hope for himself to say, I have a seat at God's table. I didn't deserve it, but I have a seat at the table. And not only did that desperation, that faithful desperation, give him hope, it gave him sympathy for other people. Because he, he could say, I didn't deserve a seat at the table. And now I'm going to go reach people who don't ha- deserve a seat at the table. And I'm going to tell them, they have a seat at the table. I was unworthy. But God gave me a seat at the table. Now I'm going to reach people who are also unworthy and tell them there's room for them at the table. What changed Paul? How did he become a person like this, regardless of his education and his intelligence and his ministry record? How did he become a person who always knew that he was a desperate soul in need of God's grace and forgiveness? It's because Paul knew the Lord Jesus. 
and he stayed close to Jesus. The reason Paul had that kind of hope and that kind of sympathy for the people around him is the same reason why you can have the same hope and you can have the same sympathy for the people around you is because Paul met Jesus. And I'm telling you, this is what it's all about. Jesus, the eternal son of God, was the only human being who was truly ever worthy to have a seat at his father's table. Jesus is the only one that ever had a perfect record who could say in the presence of God the Father, I deserve a seat at your table because of my perfect heart, because of my perfect life, my perfect words, my perfect actions. Jesus is the only person who could ever say, I belong at this table because I deserve to be at this table. But Jesus became unworthy. Jesus made himself a desperate soul. Read Isaiah chapter 53, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus, the only one worthy of sitting at God's table, made himself desperate by becoming a human being, born in a lowly stable, enduring the life that you and I endure, sympathizing with all of our weaknesses, all of our temptations, yet never sinning. And then as the perfect sacrifice hung on a Roman cross, to receive the wrath of God that I deserve, the wrath of God that you deserve because of our imperfection, because of our unworthiness. He took our unworthiness upon himself so that by faith we can receive his worthiness. And so a perfect Jesus became desperate so that you in your desperation could trust in his worthiness. And man... If you believe in that Jesus, you've got a seat at God's table. And you're not just going to get the crumbs. You're going to get what that woman, that Syrophoenician woman got. You're going to get the whole feast. You're going to be at the table forever. And nothing can change that. Saving faith assumes that you're unworthy, but that God is gracious. And on this truth, folks, Jesus is creating a faith community all around the world. On that truth, that you're unworthy, but God is gracious. Jesus creating a new humanity all over the planet. And let's allow that truth to be one of the building blocks of this faith community in Westminster, in Carroll County. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that your words sometimes trouble us and confuse us. You make us very uncomfortable, Lord. Give us the faith to trust that although you are not safe, you are good. Help us to see people the way you saw them. To respond to the desperation in us with honesty and in faith. To respond to the desperation in the people around us with sympathy Father, may your church here in Westminster be built upon the truth that you are gracious and in love and mercy and forgiveness. You welcome people in who would never dream of having a seat at your table, a place in your family, and you call them heirs. Thank you. May it be true here. May it be true in us, Father. Amen.